I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. I was waiting for the next bit. I don't know what the next bit is. It goes, happy birthday. All right. Happy birthday. I don't think either of us will be getting the uh, job as a Stevie Wonder tribute act. Or the masked singer. Hey, um, thank you so much. You you were the second person to text me happy birthday. Who was the first? My friend Mira. You got it in at seven fifty three a.m. Yeah. You sent me an array of emoji, including six red balloons, six cartons of popcorn. Yeah. Nine raised fists, which I took to be a nod to the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> Eight red roses, which I took to be you um, suggesting which way I vote in on the uh, in the upcoming local elections, and then six clown faces, which I took to be you suggesting which way not to vote in the upcoming elections. Well, that's good that I I beat market expectations, didn't I? Market expectations were that I would remember at nine forty two in the evening and be like, oh no, I forgot Jeff's birthday. Here's a text. Let me give you a little hint. If it ever gets to that late in the day and you realise you've forgotten somebody's birthday, I always wait till 11.59 and then send them a text message saying, I wanted to be the last person to wish you happy birthday on your actual day. Is that right? Yeah. That's a good strategy, Jeff. Yes. So, I went and had some time off in Devon. How was it? It was really nice, actually. Were you outdoorsy? I really was, yeah. Uh, I swam in the sea a number of times. Um, and what about the waves? Does that not affect things? It was in a bay. We, were, we, we, we stayed near a lighthouse again, although not with the foghorn this time. I was a very engaged parent, which is not like I always am. Oh, I think you are. No, no, no. I think I didn't take my phones with me. 
Was your hand twitching the whole time? No, it wasn't. It was actually joyous. I'm reading this book at the moment, or, or listen to it as an audio book, actually. You know Oliver Berkman, who used to write that column in the Guardian Saturday magazine called This Column Will Change Your Life, and it was sort of evidence-based self-help. So he'd try all these different methods around yeah. wellness and mindfulness and productivity and, and write a column about it. He's written a book called 4,000 Weeks, which is approximately how long we're alive for. No oh, crumbs. I know I had the same reaction when I heard that number. Oh, but it's 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 about really the fact that he was a productivity obsessive and he was always trying to figure out how to configure his uh, to-do list to fit the most number of things in and be organised and get everything done that he wanted to. And he's had this, I guess, sort of coming to Jesus moment where he, he realises life is finite and it's about letting go of that and understanding what doesn't matter and accepting is some it a bo- stuff. Is it a book, do you say? or a- Yes. Oh, well, maybe we should have him on. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting, actually. I think it's possibly geared at somebody like you more than it is at me, because I think I'm not good enough at putting things on my to-do list, whereas I think you always have too many. What, you mean it's sort of about just, like, being and having a nice time? Yeah, and, and just sort of accepting what, what you can and can't do. And instead of hearing that number 4,000 weeks and panicking and thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I've only got yeah. this many left and it's such a small number, thinking about it as like the most you're ever going to get and what you want to do with that time and what really matters. And it's, it's really good. Sounds interesting. Mm. I feel like there's more to tell you. Oh, I know. Actually, just, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm one for the apps. So Justine's got this, the, the ordinance, ordinance Survey app is actually very good. It does sort of walking routes. And it also it tells you your elevation. I understand that. It's nice to know how many metres above sea level you are. Yeah, exactly. And the, my, our kids were quite excited about being a thousand metres above sea level, a thousand feet above sea, sea level. Stop forcing imperial measurements on your children. Well, I think it was a thousand feet was what was on the thing. Okay. We could probably change that. And then the other thing that um, I have to report is that the old temperature laser, which had still remained in the box, well, I forgot to take it to measure the temperature in Devon, but then I did take it gingerly to the ponds. And, well, I have to say it showed a slightly higher estimate than the old-fashioned thermometer. And I had a very interesting uh, discussion with Dan the lifeguard about why that was and whether it was because the laser was just pointing at the surface, whereas the old-fashioned thing that they stick in the thing is submerged. You're going to get a bad reputation at those ponds, contesting the temperatures. I wasn't contesting. Who does he think he is coming here with his own thermometer? I did it very diplomatically, honestly. Have you used it on your bath yet? No. What about your soup? (laughs) Yes. Maybe that's right. Cup of tea? There are multiple uses for this. Ah, okay, you've given me an idea. Mm. Well, should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes, this week we're looking at unions and how they're changing. In recent months, there have been some high-profile successful campaigns in the US by workers at Amazon and Starbucks to form unions in first-of-a-kind victories, driven not by seasoned unionisers, but by young people who've been self-organising amongst themselves. To find out how these campaigns succeeded, where so many have failed, and what the union movement looks like in the UK today and causes for optimism, of course, as ever. We're joined by Ellie Mayo-Hagan, who is friend of the pod and director at CLASS, the Centre for Labour and Social Studies think tank, Mike Clancy, who is General Secretary of the Prospect Union, and Casey Moore, who is one of the organisers from Starbucks Workers Unite in Buffalo, New York. 
What's that? What's your reason to be cheerful then? Well, my reason to be cheerful also relates to my holiday in Devon, which is that I did the Woolacombe Bay Park Run. Now, what was amazing about this park run was that it is on the sand dunes, basically. Ooh, did you go barefoot? Like Zola Bud? Woolacombe Dunes Park Run. Now, there's some contestation about this, but it is the second most difficult park run in the UK. But anyway, it took me a long time to do it. I mean, it took me half an hour. Is that your PW? Personal worst. No, I actually, when I first started, I was doing it much slower. Anyway, my reason to be cheerful is that I completed it without too much injury. Congratulations. Thank you very much. What's your reason to be cheerful? I took Jean to the zoo during the Easter holidays and they have this walk through Butterfly House. I don't know if you've been in it where they're, they're flying around you. And as we walked in, the, the zookeeper was saying, don't try and touch them. Uh, if they land on you, that's fine, but d- don't try and touch them, please. So then Jean was just desperate for one to land on him and he, he was standing there with his handouts stretch for ages and i was saying look it's it's not going to happen can we just go i want to go and look at a monkey please can, can we leave and and then this huge butterfly came and landed on his finger he was so excited i'm taking pictures of it i think i want to catch this quickly before it flies away but it doesn't fly away and then this crowd gathers around him and no exaggeration it, it stayed there for almost 10 minutes and eventually he started whining going Dad, Dad, my finger's hurting, my hand's aching. And I, I didn't know what to do because the rules say that you can't touch it. And there's all these people crowding around. I didn't want to blow on it. I didn't want to, like, shoe it off in case well, people thought I was no. a butterfly abuser. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. What would you do in that situation? Panic. That's what I did. So what happened in the end? Oh, I just left him there and went to look at the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> he lives in the zoo now. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're delighted to talk now to Casey Moore, who is one of the organisers of Starbucks Workers United. Hello, Casey. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. And first of all, congratulations on uh, your recent victories. And I wondered if we could start by just asking about your story. So how did you get from being a barista to, to here, disrupting such a huge corporation? So I'm up here in Buffalo, New York, where... The first Starbucks store was unionized. That's the Elmwood store in Buffalo. And our efforts started over the summer. We're still in the middle of the pandemic. We're risking our lives every day coming to work, working in these conditions where we're now called essential workers. We're facing issues like understaffing, supply chain issues. There's a lot of issues kind of bubbling to the surface. And I think For me personally, I've always worked in the service industry. I've worked as a waitress, so being a barista was normal for me. My father's in the teacher. He's in a union, but I had never really considered what unions could do for me. I'd never considered what they could be in the service industry. But after working over the summer at Starbucks, I had picked up a shift at a store nearby, and I had been talking to one of my coworkers, and after our shift, they We were talking about politics and they had kind of pulled me aside and they said, well, what do you think about a union at Starbucks? And at first I kind of was taken aback and I was like, a union at Starbucks? I've never heard of organizing baristas. But after I kind of thought about it, I said, well, why not us? Why not a union where we can fight for a voice on the job, where we can fight for better working conditions, for better pay, for all of these things? And so I joined the organizing committee um, and we had 50 baristas up here in Buffalo sign a letter to the former CEO, Kevin Johnson, 
where we essentially announced our intention to organize. And right after that, they brought corporate executives from the upper ranks, such as Ross Ann Williams, who is the president of Starbucks North America for the company, essentially came and lived in Buffalo for three to four months during the first campaigns here. Yes. In addition to about over 100 support managers. They're so spooked at the the prospect of what this could unleash. Right. They completely uh, freaked out because we were all kind of organizing at the same time. And then Howard Schultz himself actually came to Buffalo right before our election in November as well. Did you feel that presence? Oh, absolutely. Every day that you would go to work, you weren't sure who was going to come into your store. I personally also met John Culver, who's the COO of the company. And Casey, then what happened next? So we had the first three stores going to elections. I mean, it was incredibly nerve wracking. And from the start of this campaign, we've said we only need one store to win the right to organize. We just need to show that it's possible, right? Because it's, it hasn't been done. And so the day of the vote count, I, it's still one of the most stressful days of my life. And just to be clear about this, it's the vote of all the employees at a particular store. Is that right? Correct. So we were doing mail-in ballots. So everybody at the store gets to vote. And then of those who vote, it has to be a majority. So 50 plus 1%. If a tie, the union loses. And adjoining which union would it be? We are organizing with Workers United and up here in Buffalo, the Rochester Regional Joint Board. Right. And so there was a vote in November. The first vote was in December. Yes. And what happened? We've all gathered. We have the media there. There's just cameras everywhere. We're, we're in the, the union office. That's a, an old Ford factory, actually, Model T Ford factory. And um, basically, it's just this nerve wracking moment where they go through the process of taking the ballots out of the envelope And then they have to go through the list of voters. And then one by one, they pick up the ballot and they say yes or no and put it in piles. And so we're all watching, (laughs) just frozen. And once we knew that we won Elmwood, the first store, just pure elation, pure joy, knowing that we won. So since that vote and since that precedent has been set. What what has it been like for you and other people working at Starbucks? What has the reaction been like? So since Howard Schultz, he's interim CEO, since he's come back, it's truly been an escalation of the anti-union campaign across the country. They have been telling workers that if you vote to unionize, you could lose your health care, you could lose your college tuition. Basically, in their latest thing, they've been saying, we are not planning on negotiating to the point where you're getting more so you could lose all of these things. And, and it's not the first time there have been attempts to unionise at Starbucks. What do you think has made the difference? Is it the particular moment in history caused by the pandemic? I think that definitely has to do with it. The pandemic, the timing. I think the other part of the piece is particular to Buffalo, New York. Um, a few years back, I believe in 2019, we had a local coffee shop called Spot who successfully organized a chain up here. And there's a lot of overlap between baristas who work in the city. And I think we we saw that happen and we say, we said, hey, they did it. Why can't we do it? And, and for people listening who are thinking about their own workplace, what advice would you give them about creating 
change? What makes a difference in terms of getting people on board? What have you learned about organizing? I would say that a lot of it is based off the relationships that you have. I think Starbucks came in and tried to manufacture a lot of the relationships and tried to say, we're partners just like you. We care about you. But the truth is, is that me and my coworkers, we work on the floor together every day. We know each other. We we understand each other. We're going through the same things. And so being able to use that relationship, and even if somebody isn't pro-union at first or has a lot of doubts, being able to say, hey, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for us. I'm doing this so we can have a say and make things better. Um, and that's the truth, I think, is incredibly powerful. And it doesn't take a huge amount of people. It just takes one shop, one store to say, I want to make a difference and go from there. And in terms of the material difference to people uh, working in these Starbucks, what has it meant and what will it mean? I think it's everything. I think it's hope. We're talking about baristas who are largely millennial, Gen Z, younger people who see an economic future where there's just vast income inequality, where their economic prospects aren't great. And I think our generation is turning to things like unions and saying, there's no reason it has to be like this. We can make a difference. And I think it's a hopeful thing. And it's an incredibly exciting thing to be a part of too. And and we have a thing on the podcast, like one day we're going to usher in a utopia full of all the ideas that we hear <laughs> on the podcast. I mean, the US and the UK are similar in some ways and different in others. But in terms of what a government could be doing from top down, how could government legislation or a change in labour laws make this kind of thing easier? Don't get me started. I mean, <laughs> all of the, the stores that have unionized in this country have organized despite labour law, not because of labour law. Um, it's important. We have stores that filed for an election in January who still have not, they don't even have an election date set, let alone an, like have started the process. We have the National Labor Relations Board here, the NLRB, that kind of runs all of these elections. They're just incredibly underfunded. They move incredibly slow. And Starbucks is getting away with all of these we've alleged over 80 unfair labor practices at this point. And they've really faced no consequence because of their actions. Something that we've asked former CEO Kevin Johnson and now um, interim CEO Howard Schultz to do is sign what we call the fair election principles, which are a set of principles that basically ensure that we can have a fair election, a fair union election. And so that would actually be my suggestion for if we were going to change the law of the land, it would be that, the fair election principles. Where does this go in terms of your campaign You've already got, did you say, 25 stores signed up? Yes, we've had 25 stores signed up. And how many Starbucks stores are across the country are there? There are about 9,000 Starbucks corporate stores in the US. So we've just reached over 1%, 2% really, that have filed. But momentum hasn't slowed down at all. Can you maybe set out at the stores which now have unions what the difference it's making to those employees is, because presumably that's kind of part of your proof of concept to make the case to others. Yeah, I mean, we're not naive in the fact that bargaining a contract is even more of a battle than winning the election. We have a lot ahead of us, but I think the most important thing that we're fighting for is a voice on the job, and now we have that. So if that's the power that we have just with the threat of unionization, we're very excited to see what we can do with 
continuing to build unions. Well, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I think people will be inspired by hearing about what you've done. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, we welcome back to the podcast now Ellie Mayo-Hagan, who is director of the Think Tank Class, which is the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. Hello. Hello, nice to be here. You're about to go cold water swimming, we gather. <laughs> Ed diverting the conversation onto cold water uh, yeah. swimming. And, and that, this diversion could easily go on for half an hour if I don't interject. Uh, <laughs> you've got to put a stop to it, Jen. Yeah. Let's talk first about the situation in the uh, United States, where in the past few months, there have been these victories for workers, notably with Amazon and Starbucks. Just for anyone listening who isn't familiar with these events, can you give us a bit of an overview of what it means for those workers and for labour more broadly? Why is this significant? Well, I think what we're seeing in the US is actually happening in a lot of countries, a lot of developed countries. And I only say developed because I'm less familiar with uh, unions in developing countries. It, it may well be happening there, which is that the, the pandemic obviously saw a lot of people lose their jobs. And, and some unions did see a decline in membership. But actually, the job insecurity the pandemic created, so an urgent need for people who work to protect themselves has actually inadvertently opened the doors to a new era of organising. So we've seen that in this country. And I'll give an example in this country. During the first lockdown, the Marriott Hotel furloughed its employed staff that were actual official staff of the hotel. But its contracted staff were not furloughed. And so they organised with Unite the Union and they managed to, through a sort of a combination of public pressure through working with some MPs and through organising, they managed to pressure the Marriott Hotel into furloughing them and giving them £10,000 each in backdated pay. So this is something that we are seeing quite a lot. I think what's happening is that people are suddenly realising that if they don't stand up for themselves, they can just be walked all over. And it's not a perfect journey to unionisation. So if you listen to what the Amazon organisers say, there was lots of union busting at Amazon. There were people who were suspicious and, and worried about the union. But what seems to be happening is that there's enough people who have decided to fight back that it is able to create a movement and it is able to, to found a union in some of the most unlikely places. If you can unionise Amazon, you can unionise anywhere. And so I think the fact that that's been done now will open up a lot of possibilities for unionising in lots of other sectors and companies. And in general, how do the kind of labour markets and the whole situation differ? We probably think of the US as uh, much more unfavourable conditions than the UK. But unfortunately, the UK conditions have become more and more unfavourable. So we recently released a, a report at CLASS about... The, what we called, we called it the insecure economy. And what we found is that insecurity across the entire job market has increased massively since 2005. And in the hospitality sector, for example, which we've been looking at a lot, insecurity in the workplace has doubled since 2005. We found that across all industries, even at a sort of management level, all jobs are becoming more insecure. I would like us to say that we have more favourable conditions in our labour market to unionise than the US. But actually, I think that the truth is that it's become a bit more savage, our job market, over the last decade in particular. So I do think that there are lots of applicable lessons from 
the US organizing that we can we can take to this country. And actually reading about the Amazon Union, some of their tactics are extremely similar, even though these are workers that are thousands and thousands of miles away from each other. And I would be surprised if they even talk to each other. It can feel sometimes like these big globalized corporations, they just have their ways of circumventing local practices. Are there specific lessons that we can learn in the UK? I think the first thing is for people to take advantage of the technology that we have, apps like WhatsApp and Telegram, where they can basically join groups and then talk amongst themselves in a way that is uncensored because management are not around. Another thing that that does, which is really useful, is it circumvents some of the barriers to being part of an organised union. So one of the reasons that unions have been historically seen as male-dominated is because men have tend to generally have more free time and fewer caring responsibilities to go to in-person meetings. And what we see with Amazon and other organisations in this country is that people um, will join Zoom events that they can do from home while caring for their children. The NEU um, in 2020 held an online organising Zoom call for its members and nearly half a million people joined. Wow. Which gives you a sense of how powerful this work can be and how many people it can bring on board. So utilising that technology is one thing. The second thing is, I think this has been very um, interesting for me to learn and I feel a bit embarrassed that maybe I saw things differently at one time, but I think the traditional way that we see union organising is that the union organiser goes in to a workplace, hands out leaflets, whatever, chats to people, and that still does happen. Union organisers still do that. But what we've seen with the Starbucks organising and with Amazon organising, and also there's been like care workers in this country that have done this, is that the unionising actually came from the workers. And so actually what happens is you have these workers coming together of their own volition and the union is behind them, supporting them rather than leading them from the front. So I think the other thing we can learn is to actually let workers take the lead. The other thing I think we can learn is that diversity is really important. So in the Amazon union, there was workers of lots of different nationalities and ethnicities. And the people who created that union say that it was much more effective and powerful to have somebody from the same background. And then also just a lot of bravery because, you know, it does kind of take guts to unionise. But I think if we do what we're doing in this podcast, which is really lifting up those victories and showing people that it is possible, I think more and more people will have the courage to come together and to unionise in their workplaces. Let's talk about the wider context of this, because I think I'm right in saying that in the last few years, we've seen a rise in public sector union membership, but a drop in private sector union membership. Is that correct? And maybe you can say some of the reasons for that. The main reason for that in the last couple of years, it has been the pandemic and the particular sectors that the private sector unions oversee. So, for example, Unite oversees aviation, which, of course, has just lost thousands and thousands of members. And then on the other hand, you have the public sector unions. And what happened with them is that not only were their members' jobs not threatened, but those members were often encouraged or or forced, in some cases, to go to work during the height of COVID before the vaccine was available. But I would say as well that even though some sectors have seen people leave and there's been big redundancies, 
We are seeing also an increase in other sectors that seem more unlikely. So I, I keep coming back to hospitality. We look at that a lot in um, class. There's been some real advances in really the most insecure sector in this country. And that is because people are being forced to go to work and also because the pandemic has created a more disrupted labour market for employers that has also allowed staff members to come together and make better demands because there's basically been staff shortages, which I also think in this country is partly because so many EU citizens have left the country as well. One thing that comes across in what you're saying and in the examples from the US is it's very painstaking, isn't it, this? There isn't a sort of quick fix here. It's 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 a lot of on-the-ground work and persuasion. Is that right? Yeah, and I think if you look at the country at the moment, there's been a movement away from trying to uh, improve the lives of working people through policy. And there's been a movement towards building power on the ground. And I think... There's a, a recognition that building power on the ground in communities and workplaces, yes, it is painstaking, you're right, but it also creates power that is able to challenge the power at the top. And I think there's a feeling amongst unions that that is more durable and stronger than relying on just policy changes at the top. It is difficult work, but I've been in and around unions for 10 years now both nationally and internationally. And I have to say, I actually think it's actually easier than you think in some ways because most companies are actually quite terrified of unions. And it's actually, it's a bit like seeing a spell being broken when a company is successfully unionised, when staff successfully unionised. It suddenly feels like the, the management level, which perhaps previously have been seen as completely um, insurmountable, their power is completely insurmountable, and that they can effectively do whatever they want. Suddenly, they don't seem so scary, I think, when staff are unionised. So I think, yes, it's challenging, but I also think it's easier than you might think. Once people do kind of take the power for themselves, they will face resistance, but actually... I think the world can be changed. These things are possible. And I think that's what the Amazon example shows us. Give us some reasons for optimism about the role and capacity of unions going forward. Well, I have to say, in my lifetime, I have never seen unions form as big a part of public life as they are now. In the 1970s, the Queen held a banquet for the TUC in Buckingham Palace where she sort of praised the contribution that they'd made to public life. And that just shows that at one point how central unions were seen as to the sort of the sort of British fabric of life, if you like. And that's obviously that declined a lot in the 80s thanks to the Thatcher government and the sort of winter of discontent turned public opinion against trade unions and Governments were able to take advantage of that to repeal union legislation and to enact anti-trade union legislation. But I think what I've seen in the last couple of years in particular is this sudden understanding that unions are part of a sort of fair and democratic society. They are able to create a more equal society by rebalancing power. And what we have at the moment is a society that's very imbalanced in terms of power. 
And so I think what I'm seeing is more people than ever seeing unions as a positive thing, wanting to get involved, and actually sectors that we were always told were just impossible to unionize are now seeing workers join together and defeat the richest guy in the world. You know, a group of working class people from Staten Island came together and they beat the richest guy in the world and did what they wanted to do. And I think that just shows that what what happens when we come together can be really powerful and has the chance to change the world and you know in fact it is the only thing that has ever changed the world is uh, working class people coming together it just means that anything is possible and I think people can see that and I'm really optimistic for the future of trade unions well that's a good note to end on um Ellie Mayer Hogan thank you so much for joining us thank you jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And with us now is Mike Clancy, who's General Secretary of the Prospect Union, which represents more than 150,000 members across different professions, including science, tech, broadcasting, engineering. Hello, Mike. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm well. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. And just to warm up, like, what, what are your roots with the trade union movement? I come from the, the UK's uh, key union city. so I, I can hear it. Yeah, you can pick up the accent. So I grew up in Liverpool. I don't know what I did in a previous life, but I was brought up in Evertonian and I committed my life to the trade union movement. So uh, I'm very familiar with, with hope. Really, probably those roots brought me to where I am. I actually did a law originally, um, but I remember um, one of my law lectures at the time suggesting I had a good background for dealing with criminal law. Uh, I thought that was a bit of a stereotype, really, and um, just really uh, started working for a union and uh, researched, then got a negotiating job, and uh, the rest, they say, is history. And I've had the privilege of being general secretary now since 2012. So I've done most jobs in the union one way or another, and uh, yeah, I arrive here as General Secretary of, of this great union. And in, in that time, you know, that you've seen the relationship with unions in this country change, uh, ebbs and flows. How would you characterise it at the moment? 
Do you know, uh, the interesting contrast I make now is that on March the 23rd, 2020, when we headed into lockdown, in the, you know, four to six weeks afterwards, I met more government ministers in that time in that, than I'd met probably my entire previous career. You know, the five o'clock conferences, we had the spectacle of conservative governments mentioning the trade unions and reaching for the trade unions as a means of civic reassurance that what they were doing had some righteousness to us almost. Now, that's given way, though, back, I think, back to the ideological um, hinterlands. And whilst we've still got, you know, reasonable amount of engagement with the government, we haven't, I think, learned the lessons from the pandemic that we can do things differently. And how do you think the pandemic, Mike, has changed workers' attitudes and the conditions for you in terms of recruiting members and organising? We saw a, a significant increase in membership during 2020. Our membership had been rising in this union for several years before, but there was an acceleration in 2020. Quite a bit of that would have been simply born out of the uh, anxiety and the disorientation that workers were were facing in different sectors. In, actually, our creative sector membership particularly grew in, in that period. I do think that worker experience has meant that what unions do seems more relevant. Now, that's not the same as unions successfully organising those workers or unions changing and adapting in the way I think they need to to be a more potent force in a contemporary labour market situation. But I think the question of unions having baggage as being negative has fell away. Unions were seen as a potent positive force. The government reached for us and we were able to demonstrate some influence. Many people during the pandemic, many of our members went out to work, went out to environments. And so some of these debates about working from home and forms of flexibility need to be much wider so that they appeal to broader sections of the economy, not just people who may have particular access to the ability to say work from home. I think worker expectation has increased. But I do think we've got some different forces going on in the labour market. Some parts of it are overheating and there's a skill shortage. But there's then still the precaria, a word that has crept into our lexicon in the last five to ten years. And people who are experiencing and privation or capable of being exploited. So we've got some very different currents and eddies in the labour market here to make sense of. We represent a lot of freelancers in film and TV but they're highly skilled people. Their labour's not easily substitutable, but they did experience great difficulty when their income levels disappeared in, in, in the pandemic. Now, you've got other people who are genuinely exploited in terms of self-employment and freelance work, but their experiences are very different. They come from a different skill set, less differentiated skills and less labour market leverage. All of this is playing out in a very complicated way. So make it, I think we'll t we're going to take 18 months to two years to make sense of this. And wise organisations will see this through a long lens. We've been looking at these examples from the US with Starbucks and Amazon, and they seem to be, I don't know, like quite driven by younger people. Is that something you're seeing? Um, a change in perception of unions from younger people, unions moving to accommodate the, the needs of that younger workforce. Is, is that something that's mirrored here? I've never bought into the idea that younger people are a different political species who don't share the same value set as other generations in the workforce. My experience is that often unions are a mystery to younger people. 
partly because of the way unions organise themselves as opposed to the core values of a union in terms of equality, fairness, trust in the workplace and so on being something that young people don't buy into. So I think the challenge actually is to is for unions to reimagine themselves, interpret what they do in a different way, make themselves available in a different way uh, to people who have different forms of labour market uh, need these days. And what might that look like then, that reimagining? So unions have got to be a bit less Fordist. It comes in this colour and this shape from this production line. I think we've got to be a bit more humble. I think we shouldn't look like we've got all the answers and, a, and we are paragons of truth. We've got to be much more alive to how people see their employers. Many people don't see their employers in a constantly negative light. The majority of our members are in the private sector. We've got a strong public sector membership as well. But having a strong private sector membership means we have to understand product markets, competitive pressures, uh, balance sheets, how employers uh, are, are operating. And I think what um, younger people want is a more nuanced, constructive critique of their employer when it's justified. But they also want to be able to get on. So our approach to it is to say, we can help you get on, or if necessary, we can help you get even. But we try to lead with the getting on helping people meet their aspirations with their employer, meet their aspirations in the labour market, develop themselves uh, and be you know, able to navigate whatever twists and turns might come ahead in, in their career. I think also unions can be far more accessible. We're all now talking about better digital reach, better digital engagement. During the pandemic, we ran webinar after remote engagement platform after webinar, and we reached far more members than we've ever done before. So we've now got to get the right balance of being in front of people, but also using the techniques we learned to reach out to them and engage with more of them and gather more of their opinions. I'm quite struck by what you say, Mike. Um, If I was a sort of potential member of Prospect, but not currently in Prospect, or we were a group of workers at a particular workplace, just to put you on the spot slightly, what's your pitch to I mean, give us give our listeners just a sense of of what what profession that might be in and what your pitch would be to those individuals. It does vary, Ed. So, I mean, in some places where you've got a strong occupational driver and a daily reminder why you might need an advocate, you would say one thing. So, for example, our members who are in safety critical environments in air traffic control or power and engineering, you don't set out on your daily tasks where you are putting people to work or taking significant responsibility on a safety basis without knowing you've got an advocate for your professional interests should they be called into question. So that's one environment. In areas such as the the freelance environment, in film and TV, we stand for proper rates to be paid on time, fairness on set, driving out any bullying or harassment, and also speaking up for diversity and inclusion across all those activities. But I think the thing I often emphasize to any potential member is we're your independent friend at work wherever you go. Often unions lead by from collective bargaining and pay issues and those broad economic things, which are vitally important. But often what people really want is they know that they've got someone to rely on who understands the world of work, who has the legal expertise and will talk, talk to them in a confident and if necessary confidential way about the things that are bothering them as an individual so we can be that friend at work 
whatever environment you are in. And you can know, because you pay a subscription, that we'll speak truth onto power on your behalf if it's necessary. And anyone listening to this who maybe even hasn't considered union membership within their workplace for one reason or other and wouldn't know where to start, where do you start? You start by asking yourself, and it might seem strange from an organisation that's built on collective values, what's in it for me? What does union membership bring for me as an individual? As I said to her a moment ago, it brings a reassurance that there's somebody there for you if you have an issue, someone that you can talk to, if actually it, you need that level of expertise, counselling, support, advice on career direction. And ultimately, if you have a you know, disagreement at work, someone who will, act, will fund, subject to the merits of your case, um, something where if you, if you need to oppose an, an, an employer. You then you've got to ask yourself what sort of union fits you as a person. We have to be very clear about what the value is we can bring to individuals and then build a collective engagement from that. And, and in terms of like a literal starting point, you can just presumably go to, say, the TUC's website and type in your profession and it'll tell you. Yeah, TUC website will take you from there into the sort of unions that might be, be suitable for, before your, for your background. As you think over the course of your career, Mike, do you feel, and remembering the name of this podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, do you feel, what's your sort of level of optimism about the role of unions in the years ahead? So I I think that people have now more of a thirst for their rights to be clear, their rights to be uh, upheld, and look at the reaction to P&O. Now, if we had more developed employment laws and wider collective bargaining, respect for trade unions, convening spaces in the labour market, most of which have disappeared in the last two decades, P&O couldn't have happened. And in many jurisdictions, and you guys know this, uh, P&O couldn't have happened because the law would not allow it. And really, that was a symbol of the decline of our employment laws, the decline of our means of enforcement, the consequences of reduced union reach, and ultimately, even the impotence of the state, because the government couldn't resolve the P&O issue because it didn't have the levers in its employment laws to do so. Now, I think, I, I, I organise, you know, um, still from football groups and drag, drag these old bones around a football pitch a few days a week. And I often watch for cut through when people ask me um, about things in, when we're handing out the football bibs and things like that. And P&O had real cut through. And government following rules has had real cut through. And, and I think it's important, those of us who are very you know, convicted in the labour movement, want to know, is spending time with normal people across different um, backgrounds because normal people really ground you. But when normal people think, hang on, that's just not right, that's not fair, you know it's cut through. And I think P&O absolutely did. And, I, and therefore, I'm more optimistic that the conditions are there but unions have got to get it right in. They've got to think through the proposition. They've got to remember, actually, their standing was high when they solved things in the pandemic and they collaborated. And we need the capacity to take on employers, but it mustn't be the thing we lead with all the time. Well, look, Mike Clancy, General Secretary of Prospect, it's been great to talk to you and incredibly enlightening for our listeners, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to see you both. What did you think? I think a lot of people have a perception of unions that is 
outdated. And I, I really just think a lot of it is about shifting the perceptions. And actually, young people in these places where you don't expect to find organised labour because of the pandemic, being in these circumstances where they're making it happen, is actually a really great way of shifting perception. And I don't think this is opportunism around the moment of the pandemic, which has obviously been so terrible in so many ways for so many people. But what part of it being terrible has done is, I think, made people evaluate what should be fairly expected of them in the workplace. And that's a shift that perhaps will outlive this time that we've been through. I sort of wrote in my book about the fast food workers who did the fight for 15, the fight for the $15 minimum wage. And I think what is interesting about some of what's happened to Amazon and Starbucks is the way that these workers who seemed very powerless, they've really done something which most people thought wouldn't wouldn't happen. I mean, it's been particularly true at Amazon, isn't it? I mean, then linking up what Casey said and what Mike said, I think she said that when she first started at Starbucks or when they approached her, you know, she'd never thought of a union. And I think what Mike was trying to say to us is, look, there are definitely policy issues here, but there are also sort of cultural issues of convincing younger workers that unions have something to offer them. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So as always, Jeff, uh, we'd obviously love to hear uh, from people with thoughts about this episode, thoughts about other episodes, other ideas that they've got. Uh, they can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. And we always love from hear- hearing people, don't we? Absolutely. It'd be great to hear about um, people's workplace victories. Definitely. Uh, or people's praise for us. <laughs> yes? Yeah. We always like a bit of reinforcement, don't we? Absolutely. Uh, both of us. Yeah, I've, I've got very low self-esteem. Yeah, we both we both really w- need your reinforcement. And we're not ashamed of admitting it, are we, Jeff? No, very needy. It's a very attractive quality in us. Exactly. Now, this one comes from Claire. And honestly, this is, this is a corker, Jeff. Um, It says, hello, all. So I was out enjoying my urban garden the other day and I met this dude who asked me if I thought he looked like Ed Miliband. I've attached a video. I don't see it myself, but maybe you can perceive a resemblance. (laughs) Now, you might then think, well, what what is Claire getting at? But so she goes on. I really enjoyed the last podcast episode about urban wildlife. And I just wanted to encourage you to get a trail camera. We live in the centre of Tunbridge Wells. Okay, so it isn't London, but it's pretty built up around here. We're on the edge of a big housing estate with busy roads near the town shops. Last summer, we were in the garden one evening and the bushes started rustling. They were shaking so much that I wouldn't have been surprised if a person had stepped out. What actually emerged was a really quite large badger. This made us curious about what goes on in our garden after dark. So we brought bought a trail cam and we filmed so much. It's fascinating. Our garden is pretty overgrown in places. It's very steep and can't really be easily tamed. This means it provides a home for lots of badgers, foxes and the occasional rat or mouse, thankfully far away from the house. We've got footage of all sorts of animal shenanigans going on just outside our window while we sleep. And she has provided a video of uh, 10 seconds of animal shenanigans honestly and it is i mean it's quite like sort of david attenborough it's fantastic it? yeah it's just inspiring you to uh train a bunch of cameras on your uh, compost bin yeah actually we had justine had another confrontation with the fox i think what face to face no i don't think so from a distance this comes from regular cheerful correspondent gabrielle shamash who says i recently returned home from university to attend two passover seders During the second Seder, I noticed that one of the illustrations reminded me of someone. Mid-Seder, I realised the drawing of the child had an uncanny resemblance to a young Ed. 
Now, if you've ever attended a Seder, you'll hear about the four children who are wise, wicked, simple, and too young to understand. Those are the four. Sadly for Ed, his doppelganger was the wicked child. Oh! And uh, to, to summarise, I've included the photo, mainly for Jeff's oh. amusement. It, it is quite scary. It looks like evil Ed. Oh, no. Yeah, you're the bizarro Ed from Evil World. Oh. So am I the one on the left, then? Can you not see the resemblance? Well, I can, sort of, yeah. Basically, it's, there's two levels to this. At one level, obviously, I don't want to be the wicked one. At another level, it is all about me. <laughs> <laughs> Gabrielle finishes by describing our podcast uh, as uh, a weekly check-in with one's two fun uncles. <laughs> and we've got another email about me. Yes. I mean, is I mean, Jeff, you've designed this really well. It is all about me. No, I sent you lots of email about uh, the subjects we've covered, about me, about issues, and and th- these are the ones that you've selected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Okay. So the next one comes from uh, Lizzie in Lincoln, um, and it says, "Hi Ed and Jeff, love the podcast. I made some Ed Millie fan art. Show my appreciation. I hope you like it, and I really do, Lizzie. And I showed it to my family, and they liked it too." I was then wondering, are there any pictures of you in the National Portrait Gallery? And if not, this could be a contender. Who would we need to speak to? Somebody with a sort of vivid imagination that I deserve to be in the National Portrait Gallery, maybe. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it would be on display. I just mean in their archives. In the basement. Yeah. I mean, that's no disrespect to the picture. Not at all. More disrespect to you. Exactly. It's more about the subject matter. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. You've been saying a lot recently that you value my TV recommendations. I do, yeah. And I have a couple for you, but I feel the pressure is really on now because you've you've built up my abilities so much. You're a home run hitter. It's two shows. Yeah. They are pretty similar in a way. One is kind of terrible but enjoyable, and that is We Crashed on Apple TV. Oh, I've heard about this. And it's about WeWork and, yeah. and the founders I've of it. I've heard about and, this. And, and sort of some of the acting isn't great, and some of the script is a bit hokey, but it's sort of a fun world to be in, and you kind of love hating them. I mean, our script is a bit hokey too. Yeah, um, I've heard of that. Okay, that's good. Good but bad. But yeah. genuinely good in a, a very similar vein on Disney Plus is The Dropout. Hmm? It's about Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, yes. Who founded a medical startup yes. called Theranos. Yes. Uh, and it was supposed to yes. revolutionise yes. healthcare and do blood tests with no no real needles. Yes. And she got all these investors yes. and board members like Henry Kissinger and yes, uh, yes. former US Secretary of State George Schultz. And it yes. was built on nothing. Yes. And that is really good. There's only eight episodes. And once you're through the first couple, you can't stop watching them. It's uh, the, the lead, Elizabeth Holmes, is played by Amanda Seyfried, who, if anything, is even better than she is in the Mamma Mia films, and I don't say that lightly. Wow. Can I give you a recommendation, which one of my sons has been watching? Please do, yeah. You're going to laugh when I say this. It's called Is It Cake? <laughs> I've seen, seen a bit of it, yeah. And basically, bear with us here, it's, it's basically these incredible bakers who make these cakes, and you have to guess whether it's a shoe, a bucket and spade, or is it a cake? What's your success rate? Oh, uh, I don't know, really. Probably sort of 50-50. I don't know, no. 
I'm not think, as good as your Wordle score. No, I don't think. I, no, my Wordle streak's gone anyway. Should we thank our guests? We should. Uh, I'd like to thank Casey Moore, Ellie Mayo Hagen, and Mike Clancy. Emma Corsham produces the audio for our podcast. All the research and backup was provided by Joe Kenyon and Chloe Smith at Goldfish. We salute them both. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been catching waves. He's been catching and releasing butterflies. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 